This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Bridgerton is the talk of the town lately. Its second season set a Netflix opening weekend record and is keeping viewers hooked to the screen. As the members of our esteemed town lazily sojourned in their rustic retreats, this author was doing but one thing. I knew she would return. Honing my skills. Increase her price too, I see. Or should I say, hatching my plans? Is she truly that good a writer? <laughs> no, even better, I was sharpening my knives. For all of you. You might recognize the voice of Julie Andrews there. She voices Lady Whistledown, a mysterious character who writes the town's gossip sheet filled with juicy details of what's happening behind closed doors. The highly bingeable show is another creation of Shondaland. That's the production company that brought you favorites like Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder, and of course, Grey's Anatomy. So, did Bridgerton Season 2 live up to the hype? Joining us now to weigh in is Amanda Ray Prescott. She's a freelance entertainment journalist who tracks racial diversity discourse in UK TV. Welcome to Reset, Amanda. Hi, Sasha. Nice to talk to you today. We're also joined by Subi Shah, a romantic fiction enthusiast here in Chicago. Hi, Subi. Hi, how are you doing? And Patricia Matthews is here. She's an associate professor of English at Montclair State University. Welcome, Patricia. Hello, hello. All right, Amanda, before we jump right into season two, can you give the newbies like myself a quick overview of the show's premise and what happened in season one? Okay, season one started by introducing the Bridgerton family. They live in a fictional interpretation of Regency England. Their oldest daughter, Daphne, uh, debuted as a debutante last season she marries simon the duke of hastings there's a lot of family drama in between and in the middle of that there is a gossip scandal sheet called lady whistledown written by a mysterious author the audience knows that it is penelope behind the scandal sheet but everybody else at this point doesn't so that sort of carries into the season who who's behind the scandal sheet how are simon and daphne simon and daphne are not really presence in the season as much but her the rest of Daphne's family is and her older brother now Anthony is trying to find a wife so that's how the second season starts I see okay so let's dig into season two then great place to uh, hand this off to Patricia what did you think of season two well I thought it was a bit of a mess (laughs) (laughs) okay too many um narrative threads and um I've read I think like Amanda um, I've read all the novels, and so I understand that partly the challenge is that eight season is eight seasons is a lot for a novel that focuses on one couple. Um, at the same time, I really enjoyed some things about it. I really thought that um, Anthony's speech, that's Jonathan Bailey, um, I think that it's going to get lost in sort of memory, but it's just beautiful when he declares himself. Um, there's this all of this tension that's born of the fact that these two people think they hate one another. Um, I think Edwina's rage, uh, that is um, Kate's younger sister, when it's finally revealed to her, mm-hmm. she finally sees what's happening. And um, I think Claudia Jesse as Eloise Bridgerton, I found her very shrill in the first season. She's a kind of Mary Wollstonecraft, anti-courtship ritual character. Um, 
in the, in the, um, even in the arc of the novels. And I just thought she was pitch perfect. Mm-hmm. I could have watched her all season. I loved how much her um, romance revolved around finding somebody who excites her intellectually. I should have given a spoiler alert before we we started this segment, uh, Patricia. Uh, On do you know, Subi, did season two live up to your expectations from the first season? Yeah, I actually didn't have as high of expectations for season two. Um, For season one, I thought that the romance between um, Daphne and the Duke was not as, uh, not as, uh, they weren't as attracted to each other as I think the two characters in season two. Season two had so much longing and everything that I want out of a romance. Um, the the two main characters were just so clearly attracted to each other. And I love an enemies to lovers type of trope. Yeah, I just learned about that uh, from uh, producer Brenda Ruiz. So so the plot was was clearly this enemies to lovers trope. Is that overplayed, Subi, or do you think that it works well here? I think it works well with the character of Kate Sharma. She clearly has other intentions and doesn't want her sister to marry someone who isn't, you know, in love with her. And I think Anthony from the first season has kind of a chip on his shoulder, having to be a um, a patriarch of a family at a very young age. And I think the the two, the two clashing dynamics of him wanting to find a wife versus um, Kate wanting her sister to be in love, like creates a good enemy mm-hmm. trope. Also, sorry, my computer is going off. <laughs> No worries. Um, Amanda, you gave us that great overview at the top of the first season. Did you have any bones to pick with season two? I had some bones, but they're not about the romance and how it was laid out. Okay. My my bones to pick are mostly with the I'm I love history. So I was looking for some hints about more hints about India at this time of the era mm. versus versus uh, other period dramas. That's what I was looking for. I was like, OK, they didn't mention what was going on and of course it is very chaotic history i know they don't have a lot of time for that because they're so busy with the enemies to lovers tropes and setting up edwina hopefully trying to find hopefully trying to find you know a connection and never happened so that was sort of where my where my contention was i actually liked the fact that they shifted to a ensemble format because this these characters that are in the supporting cast now are going to become main characters in future seasons so the audience needs to see their motivations what they like what they don't like what the potential conflicts are in the future yeah and setting things up i thought for translating they did a very good job translating some of the conflicts from the books to the screen but of course what shifts the dynamic of course we already know who lady whistledown is the characters in the books at this point don't she's just someone that's just there and it's that mystery happens that unfolds later on but i think this season did a very good job setting up season three and also season four to an extent but that's a whole yeah and we'll also dig a little bit more amanda into uh, your observations about the uh, historical accuracy for sure because that's a that's a pretty big deal this season and and what a lot of folks are talking about Um, now there is a big difference uh in this season um is that uh, the show seems to live in this almost colorblind universe, but it does hint at this all-white society toward the end of season one. Let's listen to Lady Danbury talking with the Duke of Hastings, who's uh, the romantic interest in season one. We were two separate societies, divided by color, until a king fell in love with one of us. Love, your grace, conquers all. 
I believe that remains to be seen. That's pretty much the only way it was addressed in the first season. Patricia, do you think that the second season did a better job of talking about it? No. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think that I agree with Amanda about the problem of depicting or not depicting um, the violent relationship between Britain and England. I don't think you, I mean, Britain and India, I don't think that an audience that comes for this story is ready for that history, right? There's like, there's no, there aren't even, especially at this moment, the novel, the novel originally is set in 1814. So there's not even a moment where, um, as in Bridgerton, where you can invent a, a thing that happens that, um, could lead to some sort of change, right? I think that Simon's skepticism makes a lot of sense. I did see that same theme of outsiders having to perform to white expectations, and I thought that that was smart. But I don't think um, I don't think it actually tackles it. And I think even though it tries, um, I think with limited success, uh, to have uh, Indian characters. Who are from India? Mm-hmm. There's no sense that they're just they're just characters who just happen to be brown. Um, the rituals around family, the the jokes about British tea. So I think there's an attempt to not pretend that these women just happen to be brown, but um, yeah, I, I don't think it gets there. I don't know that it can. I mean, I think that's one of the my sticking points with critics of the shows relationship to history. I don't think it can do that. You right. can do that in this genre. And for those who, who don't watch, Lady Danbury and the Duke uh, and the Queen are people of color, and uh, Daphne and the Bridgertons are white. Is that right? Yeah, yes. Subi, do you think Bridgerton writers should have tackled race and colorism in a more prominent way, since they're already taking so many artistic liberties from the book? Yeah, I think that they they could have done it. I don't know if Bridgerton is the right show to do it. So my thoughts on this is that Bridgerton is kind of, it's taking a white story and inserting people of color into it. And like in the end, besides a few throwaway lines, like the, the Holby ceremony before the marriage and like the things that they call each other and being from India and having, you know, Indian outfits, all the characters still could have been white. So I don't know that it would have been an easy task, but I think that, they they could have done it, but I think a different adaptation of a historical romance that actually involves people of colors and their, their struggles during that era could have been a different story to tell. Yeah. Um, the show's second season starring two Indian girls in their cast, so Kate Sharma and Lady Mary Sharma, played by Simone Ashley and Shelley Kahn. Um, so talk to us more, Patricia, about the contention from the Indian community for picking these actresses. Well, I don't know that there is contention um, for choosing these actresses. I think that uh, I think it's the same desire for authenticity that we always have when we see members from our community in a space where we might not expect them. Yeah. I was thinking about this, the stakes are much, much lower, but I was thinking about how the South is represented in media, for example, um, I live in Louisiana and Mississippi, and I'm always like there's one accent that represents all of the South. Um, there's never any air conditioning in public buildings. Like, there's just this stereotype mm-hmm. about what the South looks like. And I don't see that as much in this representation. Uh, you know, I was scrolling the Internet and looking all through Twitter. Um, some of the critiques are the fine grain critiques that you know when it's your community. I see. 
This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about Bridgerton's second season with a few fans and experts. Amanda Ray Prescott is a freelance entertainment journalist tracking UK TV. Uh, Subi Shah is a romantic fiction fan in Chicago. And Patricia Matthews is a professor of English at Montclair State University. Coming up in a few minutes on the program, we're going to talk about comfort food. And we'll be taking your calls, too. So stay with us for that conversation in our Food Friday series. Um, Amanda, the show's costuming, that's always stood out uh, to me, even in clips I've seen from afar. Uh, And this time... In watching, uh, I, I like the subtle nod to Indian culture. Um, they had the the jewel tone, the fabric text, the textures, the embroidery, the pattern work on uh, Sharma's outfits, and of course that beautiful green and gold bracelet that Kate wore uh, toward the end of the show. But did you think it was too subtle? Actually, they could have gone further. I believe people don't realize this. The Regency era had a lot of India influence fashion. All of their silks and and muslin and all of their major fabrics were all from India and all the beading, all they had jewelry importing, they had art, they had this era, they could, they were, I actually think they toned the fashion down compared to season one. Mm-hmm. So this era, I mean, it, they did represent a lot of that. And especially you'd have to pause your TV or your computer to see some of the finer details on Kate and Edwina's costumes. But it was definitely, it was definitely, they were definitely gorgeous. And yeah, this, that's another reason why some of the representation falls short, because how did those fabrics get there? How do you, okay, so we see Madame Delacroix, you know, measuring all this stuff out, but how did she get that? That involves the British East India Company. I see. So this is another, yeah, this is another way where things fall apart. Now, in terms of the costume analysis, I mean, people can go really fine grain detail about like what cut is wrong, whatever. But I think this is an alternate take of the Regency. So I feel like some costume critiques just aren't necessary because they're not trying to be completely faithful to what would have been in 1814. But there's still a gap there with the people who know history. There's, there's, you have to kind of take some logical leaps when yeah. you see things like this because all that beading fabric would have came from India and how did that get there? So that's kind of leads back to what I said earlier. Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's talk about music. The music of the show, that really caught my attention. Uh, songs I recognized, but, you know, played classically. Let's listen. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm a newbie to this, and I was playing catch-up to prepare to have this conversation with you three. And I remember hearing just, you know, in season one, episode one, uh, Ariana Grande's Thank You Next, you know, classically. So I thought, oh, this is very cool. Uh, Do you have any favorites that you heard, Patricia? I like the Thank You Next. And only, especially since it's not a song that I... It's a song that I hear in the background. Same, and, same. But yeah. I still recognized it, and I was like, okay, right, this, was, right. this is good. It's like this pleasant little itch, right? You think, oh, and I, I think <laughs> one of the things that it does is it kind of makes us, reminds us that these are timeless stories, right? You know, it's just a reminder that, and I, and Chris Van Dusen, um, in a recent interview, talked about how um, they see this as a really contemporary story. And I think their music and their specific music choices is a, a nod to that. I was unprepared for Madonna. <laughs> really? Yes. I heard that and I thought, oh, I don't know. I think because Madonna 
um, doesn't feel contemporary. She's going to kill me if she hears this. Doesn't feel contemporary in the same way that Ariana Grande does. Right. Um, Material girl. I was, yeah, I was shocked. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I thought, are we in the 80s? Now we're, you know, but we're, it was nice. But it was. No, it was good. It was nice to hear. So so before we wrap up, you know, Netflix uh, renewed the show for a third and fourth season. So I want to hear from each of you. What is one thing that you would like to see them address that they didn't address in these first two seasons? Uh, you want to go first, Subi? Sure. Um, I would like to see them address more about queer culture. It feels like they're alluding to queer culture culture a lot with um, Benedict being in situations where there are queer people. And I think that Eloise and Penelope, I think this might be kind of a fringe opinion. They're kind of coded as um, queer, but there's no explicit queer and they're both like getting romantic interest. But I want them to, you know, with their whole um, the Queen's marriage solving racism, have some sort of um, way to solve uh, solve not having queer people, I guess. Yeah. I want I want the next few seasons to be more queer. Yes. <laughs> uh, Amanda? Them to see, represent to represent more groups that have been excluded, especially in the UK television space, in terms of representation. Uh, Southeast and East Asia, they have not had a lot of characters that are representing them in a positive way that are not like stereotypes or a story about war colonialism. Also, the UK does not acknowledge at all latin america or the caribbean or anybody from the from the latin latin diaspora at all like those that'd be a great opportunity for up-and-coming actresses for season three yeah good point yeah and and if shonda rhimes is listening patricia what would you say i agree with subi i think we need to bring back henry granville and let he and benedict bridgerton explore their sexual tension and um, I don't think that it was missing, but I'm, I really um, am enjoying the way that the mothers in the series are not sidelined as um, three-dimensional characters. Mm-hmm. And we get to see, we don't usually see this in romance, right? So often it's focused on young people, but the sexual tension between Lady Featherington and the new Lord Featherington and the choice that she makes, I don't want to give away any um, other spoilers, but I would really like to see those storylines um, fill out. But really, I'm here. I'm here for a queer Bridgerton, I think. And it's, yes. and it's consistent with the novels, by the way. Like, later in the novel, there are queer characters. I don't think they get enough of a rich storyline, but it's, it makes sense given the world that Julia Quinn has created. Well, let's see if Subi gets her wish. We've been talking with Amanda Ray Prescott, a fiel- freelance entertainment journalist who tracks racial diversity discourse in UK TV. Subi Shah, a romantic fiction enthusiast here in Chicago, and Patricia Matthews, an associate professor of English at Montclair State University. Thank you all. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.